Okay, so um, so this is a, a class on uh, we're going to talk about uh, Sephardic halacha for women. That was the, that was the the, the, the idea originally um, from based on the poll in the chat. I thought there were going to be three people here. I didn't think like it said four people wanted a daytime class, so I really didn't expect it to be such a big class, and I wasn't expecting it to be um, you know such a crowd. It's great to see everybody. Um, so I think that the, uh, the, the original request was to sort of have a, uh, to approach things uh, sort of topic by topic and, and, and maybe with the things that are the, uh, uh, you know, the daily life sorts of halachot and, and, and subjects of uh, uh, practical subjects that we can uh, discuss one by one and kind of go through a, uh, I don't know, a day or go through, you know, a Shabbat or However, we'll approach it. And obviously, this can be open to whatever feedback we get. Like if there's something specific you want to focus on. Since we didn't have a chance to know who was going to be in the class, we didn't know exactly how to tailor it to the interests of everyone who was going to come. But if you have a, uh, if you have a specific interest or a topic, I'm sure that if you're thinking that something would be interesting, most likely there are other people too that are thinking that as well. And then we can uh, zero in on those subjects. So I thought that we would just start with sort of some generalities and some, some general principles and ideas and also things that relate to daily uh, daily life, tefillah, and things like that to start. And then we'll uh, get into more nitty-gritty as the weeks go by, as we have more time together. So just to give a general uh, sort of a, a picture, I want to, a lot of times I think women's halakha is uh, defined by like what women don't have to do, right? That, that's, that's, what, that's usually how, uh, what, the angle. Everyone is, uh, starts with, well, men have to do 100% and women have to do, uh, only, only have to do this, or they're exempt from that, or they are, you know, they, they have a lot of things that they're not required to do. And so the emphasis ends up being on that. For example, if you get the sidur for women, the Sephardic sidur for women is like this big. <laughs> it's very, very thin, right? Because they took out everything that Harav Ovadia said that women are not supposed to say. So that leaves very, very little uh, that uh, women are obligated to say or are allowed to say according to Harav Ovadia. Um, that's just an example. So a lot of times when we think about, uh, about women's halakha, we're thinking about what they're exempt from, you know, and, and, and there are more exemptions for women from halachot and mitzvot than there are f- for men um, when it comes to tefillah, when it comes to uh, uh, many mitzvot asay, a lot of positive mitzvot, obviously tefillin and tzitzit and etc., things that we associate with uh, the daily life and, and prayer services and things like that. Many things women are exempt. But I don't want to focus on that. I want to flip it around and I want to focus on uh, what is required of, uh, of women um, and what is required of Jews. And, um, and working from what is required of Jews to take as an ideal, okay, take as an ideal to do as much as one possibly can, rather than to look at, uh, look at the uh, opportunities, uh, you know, seeking exemptions from things. Sometimes you need an exemption. Sometimes you need a leniency. Sometimes you need to be told that you don't have to do certain things, and there's practical reasons for that. But in general, to seek after, to, to, to place as the ideal, to do as much as possible. Now, why am I saying it that way? So... Let's start with the most basic mitzvot that there are. I'm going to go even more meta than you're thinking. When you think of halakha, you start thinking about, oh, nitilat yadaim in the morning, where you start thinking about bachot, start thinking about tefillah, birkat hamazon, whatever. Things that are uh, obligations that are on a, a daily or semi, uh, you know, relatively uh, regular basis. Let's take a step back. What is the most fundamental uh, mitzvah? To believe that Hashem is one. Okay. Now, I, that sounds funny to say that's a mitzvah, it's a halakha, to believe that Hashem is one. But I'm, what I'm, the reason I'm bringing that to you is because that's a constant mitzvah. Shiviti Hashem le negdi tamid. 
the beginning of the Shulchan Aruch. The first thing the Shulchan Aruch says is, Shiviti Hashem tamid, I place Hashem before me always. That's the number one principle. Meaning in that, every Jew is equal. Emunah, recognizing Hashem, awareness of Hashem, trust in Hashem, all of these things that are constant mitzvot, constant obligations on a Jew to have what does it mean to believe in God? It doesn't just mean like you ask a random person on the street, do you believe in God? Yes. Let's say, they might tell you yes. Let's say 75% of Americans, 80% or something like that, will tell you, yes, I believe in God. How does that translate into their life? Not very much. How does that really, how does that affect the way that they look at the world? Not very much. So what does it actually mean to believe in God? It means to have a view of the world that is framed by our awareness of Hashem, the way we look at the world is different because we believe that Hashem is behind it. That's a constant mitzvah. It's actually a mitzvah to construct, to shape our view of the world based upon an understanding that it reflects Hashem's plan. That's a mitzvah. So I want, I'm saying this because I want to emphasize that we, when we think of halakha or we think of a mitzvah, we sometimes think in a very technical uh, way and that's important, some, that's important in, in, uh, you know, in, in many circumstances. But I want you to see that the fundamentals of what it means to be a Jew and to serve Hashem, there's no difference in gender, but there's no difference between men and women in that. Okay? So the idea of Yichud Hashem, believing that Hashem is one, not believing in any other gods. Well, you're all going to say to me, well, obviously I don't believe in any other god. What is this rabbi talking about? This is not the dark ages. This is not time of Tanakh where people are worshiping idols. That might be true, but let's say a person is, uh, let's say a person's superstitious, okay? Say a person that believes in superstition, okay? What about that? What would you say? Does that person really reject all other forces besides Hashem? Not really, because if Hashem, you're telling me Hashem runs the universe, except if I wear a red string on my arm, it will protect me from the bad demons, why do you need that? What do you, what do you need that for? You need something extra besides Hashem to, to protect you. you. You believe that there's some force. Hashem protects me from everything except the stuff that the red string protects me from. That is extra. Or, you know, if I step on a crack, break your mother's back. Whatever all those things. If I break a mirror, seven years bad luck. Nobody believes in that stuff nowadays. But there are other things that we get superstitious about, I think. And so superstition even to the point of something bad happened, I better check my mezuzot. Really? You think that the mezuzah missing a letter is causing a bad thing to happen to you? Or you think Hashem is so mean that because there's a letter missing from your mezuzah, he's going to punish you, even though you don't know about it? That sounds like a very, that's a very odd thing to say about Hashem. Maybe you have to ask yourself, what does it really mean to have emunah in Hashem? What does it really mean to believe that Hashem is the one running the world in a just way, in a fair way, in a true way, in a good way, if I believe that kind of thing? So I'm using these examples, not to bother you, I know that, you know, sometimes these are common beliefs. I'm using these examples to show you that emunah is something, real purity of emunah and Hashem, real purity of knowledge of Hashem and awareness of Hashem. These are not things that are taken for granted. These are things you have to work on. You have to weed out of your belief system, weed out of your habits, certain things that are actually militating against emunah and Hashem and you don't even realize it. And that's a constant mitzvah. That's a constant avodah that we do, a service of God that we're engaged in all the time to understand 
the unity of God, which means that everything in the world is run only by Hashem. There's no other force operating out there that we have to placate, that we have to worry about, that we have to be afraid of. Okay? It's very deeply rooted in us, the idea. But if you think about it, superstition of any kind is really a type of denial of the oneness of God. Because you're saying there's something, there's Hashem, but there's also bad juju. Or whatever it is that, you know, whatever, whatever they call it. Okay? That's, that's a problem. That's really taking away from the idea of Malchut Hashem, that Hashem is the, is the king, Hashem is the master of things. So, like if a person will, a person one time called me many years ago and they asked me, you know, they said bad things are happening in their life all the time and they are 100% sure it's because so-and-so cursed them. They put a curse on them. And, th- and that's why all these bad things are happening to them. I said, if you, and they wanted me to remove the, I don't know what they wanted from me. I don't know. Something. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Right, well, yeah, yeah. No, but business is business. You think it's business? Yeah, 100%. You don't think that it's some kind of... It's 100% business. Not like... It's right. I'm 100% sure that it's only business. The only, th- the only thing that can save you is Hashem. That's it. That's... The, there's, you know, so anything like that is already Even giving... Even she's some, Yerach and she's a tzaddikib, like a nice lady... Like I don't want to judge any... La- I know a lot of nice ladies. It's a Moroccan thing. I think. It is. Like, um, <laughs> I know, I live amongst the Moroccans in Israel. <laughs> I love them. They're wonderful. But, but it's written places. It's not like it's... It's not coming from... They're, make, they're not making it up. It's, it's a Masora of it. It's dangerous to go down that road. I would, I would just say... I would avoid it. Because anything that you're buying into an idea that there's another force operating in the world that can be combated in a way other than Avodat Hashem, other than Mitzvot, other than Teshuvah, you're already taking away from the idea that Hashem is the exclusive source of all of reality. You're chipping away at it. It's not. That is not sourced in Zohar, for sure not. Where it's from, I don't know. But... uh, yeah, but the, the, once you go into that, right, there's a lot, a lot of those, a good rule of thumb is anything that you find not only in Judaism, but also in other religions is usually not actually from a Jewish source. And that's one of the things, like the lead stuff, all that. It's found in other religions too and other cultures. So most likely, just like the red string doesn't come from Judaism, right? It comes from, uh, it comes from uh, Middle Eastern culture. It existed before. The Gemara even mentions it, that the, it, they say it's Darkeha Emori, the, the people of Emori, they used to wear red string. So, um, yeah, so uh, sources are, you know, that's also, yeah, it's another example. The Hamsa is Arab. It has nothing to do with Judaism. It's, a, it's something from Arabia. So like... I wish I, I wish I could answer. I don't, maybe that's why the Mashiach didn't come yet. That's for the next class. <laughs> I don't know. I've been with this idea yeah, it's such a, it's it's, no it's very troubling to me because it's become so much a part of Jewish life, the belief in these sort of things, but it really has no actual source in any genuine Jewish text. Even in the Zohar, even in the Kabbalah, it doesn't have. Because the Mashiach is 
Yeah. We say, you know, there's like the list, you know, the list of those words that you're not allowed to say. And yeah. you say, be and, yeah. and you're not allowed to, the, the number you're not allowed to say, and the, yeah. the objects you're not allowed to say. Even, even in the Mashadi community, there are things that came from the general Middle Eastern culture no, that influenced them. Or from Muslim people. Right. 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 So, that, so that might not be a bad thing. No, it's not a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, take it's, it out it's of It's more in line with what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, so that's good. But do you differentiate superstitions and like the consequences of our actions from like what it says in the Torah? Like if Hashem says, "Oh, if you do X, Y, Z, then X, Y, Z is going to happen." That's Hashem. That's not superstition. Right, you know what I mean? Saying, is that how you differentiate it? Like if it's sourced in a if Hashem says, in the Torah, yeah, like, even right, even a lot of even a lot of what Hashem tells you in the Torah, even a lot of it. I wouldn't say all of it, but a lot of what the Torah talks about in terms of reward and punishment or in terms of consequences of behavior, like in Mishlei especially, if you read the book of Mishlei, a lot of it is natural consequences of behavior. You know? Not that that's all there is. There's such a thing as Hashkacha Pratit. There's such a thing as, you know, Hashem, you know, uh, you know, protecting a person who's doing a mitzvah and so on. But a lot of it is if a person lives according to the wisdom of Torah, they'll be more successful. A lot of it is if a person is moderate I'll give you an example, a very famous example. It says, Aser ta aser. Give tzedakah so you will be rich. Right? So, I'm not denying the idea that, yeah, when you give tzedakah, Hashem gives you more because you're doing good with it. But there's another reason behind Aser ta aser, which is when a person is able to give and to be generous, they're more satisfied with what they have. They're less attached to it. They're less, un- they're less particular about it. They're less addicted to it because they're able to give it away. It, make- it gives them a healthier relationship with their money. You know, or take the example of Shemitah and Yovel that we read about in the parasha of the week. Okay? The Torah says, don't worry about the fact that there's going to be Shemitah. You're not going to work the land for not only for one year, but the 49th year and the 50th year. You have Yovel, so you have a, a, you know, two years in a row you can't work. And that means the third year after that, there's also nothing in the field because you didn't work in year 50. Right? So there's, a, there's three years in a row. And yet Hashem says, don't worry, you're going to be okay. So that's, that's a bacha that Hashem's telling you that you don't have to worry. Or when everybody comes up to Ali al-Regel, everyone comes and they leave the borders not defended because they all came up to the Beit HaMikdash for the holidays of Shavuot and Sukkot and Pesach. Don't worry, nobody's going to attack you. So that's, you know, that, that, that's Hashem making you a promise. But even there you can see why in nature it also there's an element of natural uh, consequence. Why? Because if you know that there's a Shemitah year, you're going to plan, your economy is going to be different. Just like you know there's a Shabbat, right? So you plan your work so that you're ready for Shabbat. You do more during the other six days because you know that you have to pace yourself for Shabbat. If you know there's a Shemitah and a Yovel, you're going to plan for it. You're going to be prepared for it. So the economy of the, of the, you know, the Jewish state will be structured in such a way that naturally it'll be more prepared for those years because they knew in advance that it was coming. Or if you're all coming up to the Beit HaMikdash and Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, that's actually a demonstration of strength. The nations of the world will see. They're so confident that they do that. We're not going to mess with them. So there's a natural side to it as well as a, as well as a, a metaphysical side. So I wouldn't call it superstition because whenever you're working with Hashem being the one who's behind it, whether it's supernatural because Hashem's giving you Hashka Chapatit, whether it is natural because Hashem's telling you when you live according to certain principles and certain chuchmah, you're going to be more successful than if you live according to Shtuyot. That's always true, right? Oh, oh no. Shadi? Yeah. So... In the, is that superstition or is that... Like-
that's not superstition. The thing with Shedim is that the uh, the the Chazal be- believed there was such a thing as Shedim, but they didn't believe it was something that God didn't create. It would be like if you said today there's such a thing as bacteria, there's such a thing as uh, there's such a thing as viruses uh, going around. There's all kinds of different forces that you might not be able to see, but they're having an impact. That's not they're saying God created it. If there was a like in let's say in Christianity or something like that, where they believe Satan is a separate force that rebels against God and he's at war with God. He's trying to take over the world against God. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing we would say that's nonsense, right? The Shadim are created by God. He designed them a certain way. They sometimes cause you trouble. They sometimes mind their own business, you know? Nowadays, let's say, we're less convinced that there's such a thing as Shadim. Many people will tell you there's not really any such a thing as Shadim, but the thing was that back then, they noticed a lot of phenomena that they had no explanation for, so they said, well, it must be caused by something. They called it Shadim. What about the thing with the window? I don't know that. When you have a window in a house that you, um, and you, let's say, do construction and there was a window or the there and you write, you know what I'm talking about, and then you can't rebuild that wall without the window or door, so usually they do is they put a little... Why, because of a Shadim? Yeah. So the Shadim have a way to... get out? <laughs> okay. But Look, the, the, but there's the a lot of... There, right, there used to be, right. There used to be, look, I don't necessarily, look, the idea of Shedim, just to put it in, into, the main thing to understand about Shedim is, is that the basis for the belief in Shedim is not because there's a force other than God operating in the world. So whether you believe that there really are Shedim or you believe that, well, Shedim was the way that they, like what they would use to explain things in nature that they couldn't really, they didn't really have a way to account for. So they thought it must be the Shedim doing it, you know? And, and nowadays we have different explanations, so we don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of Shedim. Whether you believe in the Shedim or not, it doesn't matter. The main point is to realize that even the Chachamim who believe in Shedim don't believe that they were, they're separate from God, they're working against God. Just, you know, that's the main that's point. That's the main Hashem point. Hashem is on top of all Right, things. God created it, so God created Shedim. He didn't create Shedim. I don't know, Hashem will know whether he did that or not. Just you know. saying, like if, people if there were beliefs about are, Shedim, like, right. If people that are like, religious are coming and saying, like, oh, like, these aren't superstitions, they're from Hashem. Right, that's right. If it's a real, meaning, so the... That's the difference. Meaning, if a person says, oh, I might say to you, I don't really believe there are beings called Shedim. I think that, you know, these were, uh, you know, that there's another explanation of it, like what the Rambam says, what the Meir, many of the Rishonim, they didn't believe there was really a thing called Shedim. They thought that it had other meaning, okay? But what, but let's say you believe that there's such a thing as Shedim, but you say, okay, and and the Gemara says that you shouldn't trap them in an airtight place. They have to get out, they have this... Okay, you're not saying that the Shedim are some kind of a, it's not a superstition. This is what you, you know, just like the same way I would say, oh, don't, leave, don't close your washing machine because it'll grow mold inside. You know, that's not, it's not superstitious. That's just the way the nature is. You have to air it out, right? So you air out the Shedim or whatever, right? It's like, uh, that's not superstition. It's not superstition to believe in Shadim if you believe that the Shadim are created by God. It may be right, it may be wrong, but it's not superstition if you believe it's created by God. So Rabbi, you're basically saying just don't give it power? That don't believe that it's a force other than Hashem. Whatever Hashem created Hashem is all that there is, right. and nothing has a power independent of God. Like if people believe that the red string and the, any of the other superstitions are from Hashem, then it's but not, not considered a But they're not. That's the only problem. 
Right. What about like zodiac, where we say that a, a person born under this moon right. or this sun or blah 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 has this? Right. So how, how right. do we know that we have because we're Jews? We have we're in Mazalisa, right? So that, so that's aim, right. There is it exists, but right. we're able to transcend it right. if we work on ourselves. Right. But it says to Avraham Avinu, you're above the Kochavi. So that in today's terms, like. A lot of the ideas that the Gemara said about astrology and things like that were based on the astrology that, that existed in their time, which at their time, in their time, was, was science. Basically, that was what... It would be like today if you said you, that a lot of what your personality is genetically determined. You know? So, like, it's genetically determined, it's environmentally determined, all those things. Now, the way we might explain what does it mean genetically determined, what does it mean uh, um, environmentally determined might be different than Chazal 2,000 years ago and 1,000 years from now, it might be different than it is today. So did, were the Chazal telling you that you have to specifically believe in, um, in the particular astrological interpretations they had? I don't think so. Just like they give a lot of medical remedies but if, if any of the rabbis of the Gemara were alive today, they wouldn't say, no, no, don't go to North Shore. Uh, take this root out of the ground and take this and mix it together. No, they were giving you what their, what their science was, meaning they're showing you that it's important to know what, the, what, what medicine is and be familiar with the medical remedies and use them because this is what God created. If you show them, well, actually, a, a, a Tylenol works better than that than, uh, for a headache than whatever their complicated remedy was, then, then they would take that. So meaning, the main point is that God created the world, things function by nature. A person is born under certain conditions. Let's say uh, uh, they have certain genetic uh, predispositions and certain things happen at birth even sometimes that affect the development of a child. They didn't get enough oxygen, too much. The, the, the environment was this, the environment was that. They were exposed to this or that. So all of those different elements really do go into forming what kind of person that uh, individual comes out to be. So in that way, it's 100% true, and that's part of how God designed nature. So you don't have to necessarily even go to uh, an astrological explanation. That was what the, the Gemara used. But I, when I read the astrological explanations, I read it as what they're trying to say is they understood and they recognized and they knew from from the tradition, from the Masorah that we have, that nature plays a huge part in what, who a person is and what they are, and that what a Jew has that's unique is that because we have the Torah and we can, we can step above whatever that would normally be nature's predetermining factors. Uh, and a person who doesn't have Torah, they don't have an ability to do that. They just, so, so that was why, uh, for example, human beings have free choice. Everybody at this table would agree with that. So then how come it is that there's statistics about human behavior? Like a certain percentage of people every year kill somebody. A certain percentage of people every year get in a car accident. A certain percentage of people every year do this. A certain percent of pe- percentage uh, rob banks. I don't know. There's a, it's very consistent. Why is it so consistent if human beings have free choice? The answer is that most human beings don't ever exercise their free choice. So, and nature is consistent. So since nature 99% of the time is consistent because almost nobody actually exercises their free choice, they just go with how nature wired them. That's why there are consistent statistics. If every individual was an, a real individual making independent choices and going above the stars, like you say, above the mazal, so then yeah, you wouldn't be able to predict anything. It would, be, it would be different. So, so the main point is that this emunah, recognizing Hashem is the master of everything, that's the first mitzvah that there is, and that's all the time. A person has to always be seeking that out and always be, uh, be applying it to their life and making sure that no other emunot felot, we call it in, in Hebrew, right? No other uh, uh, fake, false beliefs uh, creep in. 
But there's another part of that, which is another mitzvah that applies every second of the day and every moment is Ahavat Hashem and Yirat Hashem, to love God, to fear God. These are mitzvot that apply to every Jew all the time. What does it mean? We have it in the Kriyat Shema. Of course, we say Shema Yisrael. And you might say, well, women are not obligated to say Kriyat Shema. But you are obligated in something related to the Shema. What are you obligated in that very much places the Shema front and center? Besides saying it, there's another mitzvah that you have, believing it, yeah, but besides that, there's another mitzvah, physical mitzvah that you have, that you probably don't think about it that much. You don't, do you, you don't wear it's feeling, do you? Yeah, for a woman. Yeah, that's right. Loving Hashem with everything you have. Look at the door. Oh, it's mezuzah. Yeah. Okay, so the mezuzah is, everyone's obligated to mezuzah, men, women, everyone's obligated to mezuzah, right? What's in the mezuzah? The first two paragraphs of the Shema, that's it. Okay, so that, so that means that you're surrounded by that, right? The Shema is, a, is, is supposed to set the phrase, the Rambam has a beautiful, beautiful description. He says, whenever a person walks in and out of their house, they remember that there's nothing that exists forever except your relationship with Hashem. Everything else, whatever you're going out to do, whatever errand you're going out to run, and your house and your possessions when you come into your house, all of it is fleeting. All of it will outlive you. But the, truly what's eternal for you is your relationship with Hashem. That's what, that's what the Rambam, it's a beautiful Rambam says that about mezuzah. So what does it mean to love Hashem? When you realize that Hashem is the one and only, when you realize that Hashem is the one who is master of everything and controls everything and everything that you see that's beautiful and that's good in the world is from Him. So then you want to get close to Hashem. You want to you discover more about Hashem. You want to learn more. You want to be able to experience more. And that's what Ahavat Hashem, loving Hashem is that. But there's also Yerat Hashem, which means you realize, wow, Hashem... His wisdom and his greatness are very vast, and I am very small. That's Yirat Hashem. Okay? A sense of smallness before Hashem, but also a sense of desire to come close to Hashem. That's Avat Hashem. These are mitzvot that apply to men and women all the time. How do you develop Avat Hashem? The Rambam says, Rashi says in Chumash also, okay? The Chazal say, how do you develop love of God? How do you develop real fear of God? Only through learning, only through gaining more understanding of Hashem because the more you understand, the more you love. The more your mind blown. Right, the more your mind is blown. The more you're, first of all, the more you realize how, how vast Hashem's wisdom is and also the more you realize how small you are. You know, we, we only think the world revolves around us because our idea of the world is very, very small. You know? But if you, if you look, there's this wonderful video that I have shared with some of my chats um, in the past, but I don't think I ever shared it with, uh, uh, with, with any of the ladies' chats. But there's a beautiful um, uh, video by Carl Sagan. He was Jewish, but uh, not, not a very uh, committed Jew, but he is Jewish. But he was a, he was a scientist, very famous scientist, physicist. And um, he, he has a video called The Pale Blue Dot. It's a very short video. It's only like, uh, like two or three minutes video. And basically... He shows the world and then he shows like earth from a distance of like the Milky Way and then earth from a distance of very, very far away. And all you see is a tiny dot. And he basically says every war that was ever, ever fought, every jealousy that you ever had, every person you ever admired, every person you ever hated, anything that you ever did happened on this tiny blue dot. All of the wars, all of the killing, all of the genocides, all, everything that happened was fighting over a piece of this tiny blue dot, 
right? It's a very powerful video that kind of puts things into perspective, how small we are. What allows us to think that we're very big is that we have a very narrow viewpoint. We don't see that much. So a a baby thinks literally the universe revolves around them because they don't have a sense of broader awareness. But most adults rarely graduate past that either. Okay? I'm, I'm just saying, that's the truth. Shabbat is supposed to wake us up to that. Yeah, we think about God created the universe and, and obviously all of our tefillot and so many of our bachot are supposed to sensitize that, us to this broader perspective. But the more limited your perspective, the bigger you seem in that picture, right? The smaller the picture, the bigger you are in the picture. The bigger the picture, the smaller you are, okay? So when a person really sees how vast God's creation is. And the more you see and appreciate it, the smaller you feel, but also the more you want to connect to, to Hashem. That's it. Everyone here has, I'm sure, read some Tehillim and everyone knows what David HaMelech says. When I look at your, when I look at, I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, right? That uh, I see the moon and I see the stars. I say to myself, what is a person that you even pay attention to them? I'm so small. But at the same time, he says, you've placed human beings at such a high level. You've given them such a zechut. You've enabled them to be the master of, your, of, of this world and to, to develop it and to be the one to direct it. And yet we're so small. So that's really, it embodies really the two sides of, uh, of our attitude towards Hashem. One is this admiration and a desire and, and, and seeing that we are unique. We have an ability to relate to the Borei Olam. A fish can't do that. A lion can't do that. A monkey can't do that. To relate to God, we have a mind able to, our mind can reach to the end of the universe. We're able to understand things about God's creation that no, one, no, no other creature on this planet can understand. And yet, when we understand it, we see how tiny we are and how limited our ability to understand things is. And that's part of the exper- religious experience of loving Hashem and fearing Hashem when we have that. So to be able to cultivate that, how do we cultivate that? We cultivate it through learning. When we see the wisdom of the Torah, a person who understands, who can have a mind-blowing experience of seeing insight into the Torah and say, wow, look how deep the Torah is, how much I understand now and how much I realize I don't understand. You know, it's so vast, but every insight you have, you're like so excited. Wow, I had a breakthrough. I understand something I never understood before. It's like you're, you pull back a little bit of a, of a curtain and you see a little bit of a glimpse, but you know that so much of the curtain is still in place and blocking you. You, know, you just got a little bit of a glimpse of what's behind there. And that's, the, that's what happens when a person learns Torah and they see the wisdom of, of Hashem. So it's often mistakenly said that, oh, women are not obligated to learn. That isn't tr- really true. What women are not obligated to do is they're not obligated to have a regimen of learning. Like men are obligated, they're, they're obligated to learn from the beginning to the end. They're supposed to learn the entire Tanakh, the entire Mishnah, the entire Gemara, the entire Halakha, the entire, they're required to learn everything. Women don't necessarily have that obligation, but what they do have is an obligation to love Hashem. And to love Hashem means that you have to learn something. You have to be engaged. You have to be seeking. You have to be understanding because otherwise, what is it going to be based on? So it's very important to realize that learning should be a part of everybody's life. It doesn't have to be in the same, look the same. Or, you know, it's uh, the Ramchal says, Ramchal says that even, even for men, he says, a, a man who's going to be a rabbi of a community or a man who's going to be a dayan, a judge on a beddin, what he has to know about the nitty gritty of all the technicalities of certain halachot is much more 
than everyone else. Everyone else just has to see the wisdom of the Torah. They have to understand about, you know, what the Torah teaches about certain things and to appreciate it. And to, but you don't have to know. I had a book this big when I learned to... Um, when I learned uh, about uh, uh, gitin, about uh, divorce, so the, the special like course that you take to become a dayan, to be able to sit in a betin that does a Jewish divorce, okay? It's, a very, it's very involved and it's extremely technical. There are books this big, I'm not exaggerating, it was like this big, just telling you how to spell different names correctly because if you spell the name correct, incorrectly, the whole thing is invalid and the whole thing is like a, a disaster, right? So you have these books, uh, what about names from Arabic? What about names from Farsi? What about names from, you know, because not everybody has a Hebrew name. So you have to know how to transliterate a name. All of these details and details and details. Who needs to know it? Only a person who is doing that stuff, right? It doesn't benefit. It doesn't bring a person to Ahavat or Yerat Hashem. It's a technic, technical specialty that they have to have, okay? So that's one extreme. So what we need to know in order to develop Ahavat Hashem is to see the beauty of Torah in the areas that speak to us and that enrich our lives as much as possible so that we can continue to nurture that feeling of awe of Hashem and love of Hashem. That we have to have, that every human being has to have. Okay, so these are mitzvot that apply all the time to everyone to be constantly invested in that. And again, the learning that you do might not look the same as a learning that a guy does that he feels like, oh, I have to fi- finish the shas. I have to make a siyum. I have to do the mishnayot and the gemarot and I have to learn shulchan aruch. It might not look exactly like that. But for sure, it has to be engaged with the content of Torah so you can come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of uh, Hashem's wisdom because that's what it's about. Seeing Hashem's wisdom is how we connect with Him and, uh, and how we're able to uh, strengthen our uh, relationship with Him. So, yes. Sorry. No, I'm, I think I'm um, paused. Even though I'm sure like everyone has different things they gravitate towards to learn, like mm-hmm. different women, do you think that there's like certain studying that like all women should, like fundamental things that all women should learn? I think, um, yeah. I mean, I think, the, I, I wouldn't even just say women. I mean, I think everybody, but obviously Tanakh is, you know, and especially the stories of Tanakh and books like Mishlei that speak about the wisdom of life. I think they're so, so great to learn for anybody. They're even, it's even a great type of learning that you can do with your spouse or you can do with your kids. Cause it's like, like I find that it's what we call it's something that like anybody can really relate to. Like when you get into the stories, the wisdom of the stories of Tanakh, especially in the Torah and also in the early Nevi'im. And then you get to Mishlei and all the sayings and the observations about life that are so compelling and insightful and you can discuss them. There's so much wisdom in it. It's, it's really deep. So I think those are great to learn. And obviously there are books like Mesilat Yisharim. There are books like the Rambam's, you know, the, the, the beginning of the Rambam, especially the Mishneh Torah, where he talks about all the fundamentals of Judaism, Pirkei Avot, obviously. Um, there are lots of Sfarim like that. I mean, I could probably give you a whole long list, but I think that, for everyone, it's important to have that big picture kind of a learning. Uh, and uh, the people who are going to specialize in certain areas, or let's say that what the men spend a lot of their time doing uh, is uh, filling out the details and getting into technicalities and things like that. But even they oftentimes are missing some of the fundamentals. They're missing a lot of the big picture. 
And that's a, that's a problem that didn't just originate in our generation. If you open up Chovot HaLevavot, Chovot HaLevavot was written before the Rambam's time. The Rambam says, my father loved the book Chovot HaLevavot. It was always on his desk. You know, he's like, uh, it, goes, it, it was a, a book that predated the Rambam. And in the beginning, he tells a story about how, uh, he, he talks about how people in the, in, in the Beit Midrash are studying are, de- are debating a question about some technical law that never ha- came up in the history of mankind and will never come up in the history of mankind and they're debating it and debating, debating it but if you ask them about the fundamentals of the oneness of Hashem or what does it mean to trust Hashem or what does it mean to love Hashem or any of these basics they, they, they won't know how to answer you Okay, and the Ramchal in Mesilat Yisharim in the beginning says exactly the same thing. So nothing changed over the, you know, almost a millennium, whatever, seven, eight hundred years. Uh, not much changed because he says exactly the same thing, that people who are focused on the details of the details and they get lost in the details, the details are extremely valuable when you have the big picture, right? Like a scientist has a big picture of how something works and they study specific, they zero in on something. When they're doing research, they're zeroing in, but then they zoom back out and they see how it fits into the big picture. If you don't have the big picture, the details, you just get lost in them, right? If you have a big picture and you zoom in on something and then you can zoom back, now you're filling out a total picture and that's really the ideal. But everyone has to start with the foundations and the fundamentals, right? So I think that's really where, where everyone should start. And when you see the wisdom of, like, especially just even the Tanakh, you see the wisdom of it, the depth of it. It's a, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing and eye-opening and, and it really gives you a passion to want to know more. You know, when you, when you, when you learn a little bit, it's, uh, it's like an appetizer. It just it makes, you want to, it makes you want to learn more. And that's, that's the beauty of it. That's what Avat Hashem really is. Love of Hashem, the, uh, like Rashi says, what does it mean to love Hashem? What, how, how do you develop love of Hashem? Since you can't really know Hashem directly. Hashem is hidden from us. So how do we love Hashem? He says, study the Torah, and from that you will come to love Hashem, the one who gave it. That's how you do it. So since Ahavat Hashem applies to everyone, so does the learning process that leads to Ahavat Hashem. Because otherwise it's just a platitude. Oh yeah, I love God. Yeah, yeah. Just like most people say, I love, every, I love my neighbor. I love every, I love every Jew. You know, the, they love every Jew except their neighbor, the person that sits next to them in synagogue and the person, you know. That's a, the, it's just a platitude. It's just, a, it's just words, right? To really mean it, there has to be some depth behind it. Right? There has to be substance behind it. So that's, these are mitzvot that apply all the time to everyone. Right? Now, we can get into... Um, I, I wanted to start with this on purpose because I want everyone to realize that that's our ultimate goal. The ultimate goal we all share. Now, there are certain mitzvot and there's certain areas of practical daily halakha where women have a more lenient uh, regimen than men. Like, let's say, for example, with regard to tefillah, they don't have to do as much of the tefillah and so on. Does that mean that, therefore, you should say, well, I'm a, I'm a girl, I don't, have to, uh, I don't have to do that. No, that's not the right attitude. The right attitude is, look, I, I'm allowed, when I need to, to uh, do less. But the, whatever you do, look, my attitude is that men should do less. They, they, they read too much and they don't even know what they're saying by the end of the tefillah. They, they spend an hour reading that maybe for the first 15 minutes they're awake and then by the, the last 45 minutes they're already their brain, brain checks out. They should probably do less, right? The key is not more or less. The key is what's bringing me closer to Hashem, right? That's really the key. 
So if you have, you're exempt from certain things, okay, but if you find that it enriches you to do more tefillah, there's no, nothing preventing you from doing more tefillah. Okay, if you find that there's always a baseline requirement, okay, there's a baseline requirement of tefillah, there's a baseline requirement of bachot, but if a person finds that they can do more and it's enriching them to do more and there's nothing holding them back from doing more, then there's no reason why they shouldn't do more just because of their gender one way or another, okay? Yes. Like someone once said to me that, like I remember this in STEM, they were like, it's kind of like vitamins. Like if you're taking a vitamin that you don't need, like and you're not like, your doctor didn't tell you you're vitamin deficient, like you can take a vitamin D supplement. And it might make you feel better. It's not actually doing anything. Like I want to know. I mean, it psychologically makes you feel better. Yeah. yeah. Like psychologically. And like you might feel like you're getting yeah, we probably are. a little bit better. But like it's not really meant for you. It's not really doing anything. Like if Hashem didn't obligate us in it, then like, Probably not doing much for us. Mm-hmm. But do you think that fits in with what you're saying or not really at all? Um, I'm not sure I would agree with that necessarily. Um, That's like about Right, you have a leniency not to, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it's not a benefit like, and a good... Right. Look, that's more of a political... I don't even want to get into that because it's like a whole po- politics. You know, yeah, because like, the, the, you know, if you, if, if you go back to... The problem, what happened with Talit and Tfilin is that, um, is that in modern times, you know, because of the conservative and reform and all that, they started associating women putting on Talit and Tfilin. Oh, it's the reform. The Rambam doesn't say anything about that. He says a woman is exempt from it. If she wants to, she can do it, but without a bacha. That's always the Sephardic... Uh, is it true? Sephardic the daughters of Rashi, there's a legend that the daughters of Rashi wore tefillin. We don't really know if it's really, if it's really true or not. It's like a legend. It's like a legend. kids were amazing, so right. maybe they did. Maybe they did. They got this it says, Michal Bat Sha'ul wore tefillin. It says in the Gemara, Michal Bat Sha'ul. And, the, and the Gemara says, some people say they protested against it, they didn't like it. Some people say, no, the Chachamim were okay with it. So like, um, the question there is, is that because, you know, what's the reason why they would have been for or against it? But I think, you know, there's, a, there's an apologetic view what I would say is there's a, there's a view that really originated uh, in the, 20th, the 19th and 20th century, Ashkenazi uh, view, that, oh, the reason why women are exempt from certain things is because they're spiritually higher and they don't need it, right? right. And so that's oftentimes told to women today, but it comes from like a 19th century Ashkenazi enlightenment attitude that they started to feel um, that they were out of step with the modern world, having like different roles for men and women. And so they came up with this creative idea that women are actually better than men, which just makes men feel better about themselves um, because they're able to say, no, actually women are much better. You know, they like to say that even though they don't live that way. It's not, it doesn't really reflect itself in, their, in much of their conduct, but they like to say that because it makes them feel better. And it makes the women feel better maybe. Um, but I think the reality is my, my own very, you know, uh, straightforward view is that the reason why women are exempt is because they were busy with things that they had to do. And the Torah recognizes that ha- raising children and, and managing a home and all these things is extremely important. 
So you also have Torchei If a person is a community, uh, a rep, you know, somebody who works for the community and they have what's called Torchei they have to take care of the needs of the community. They're also exempt from almost every positive mitzvah because they're, they have obligations. Keeping the community running and holding the community together is, is extremely important. And well, I think mitzvot, that... Like, let's say... What? Like, Shabbat, right. like, Positive mitzvot. Like, they would be exempt from, let's say, tefillin, tefillah, kriyat They could be exempt from sukkah, lulav. If they're doing, like, tzorchei tzibur, they're doing important communal things. But which kind of position are you talking about? The people who are involved... Yeah, for sure, Hatzalah. For sure, Hatzalah. Not even a question. Right. But even even if the men were... Right, e- even if they were involved in, let's say, uh, some urgent matters related to the community that isn't life and death necessarily, uh, figuring out the calendar, because they used to have to do that every year to determine the calendar for the year, all these things exempt them from all these mitzvot. Well, these were men, but I'm, I'm giving as an example. Whenever you have you, the exemptions, right, could be, I mean... Where you draw the line, I don't, I, you know, is, is, is more of a practical question. I, each person would have to find out, you know, determine for themselves. But the idea that having responsi- communal responsibility can override uh, a, a mitzvot, I say, that's how I interpret the same thing with women. In other words, the reason why they're exempt is because they had a responsibility, which was very fundamental for the practical function of, of, of the home and, and therefore of society, because all society is is a collection of homes. I mean, it's the household. So. Yeah. However, there's always going to be women who are past that stage of sure. life, before that stage of right, life. Right, of course. Single. The Torah always um, speaks. Always. 100%. So the Torah always, halacha always operates in categories. That's the thing. Right? It always operates categorically. So you can have, a, you can have um, uh, you'll always have lots of exceptions or circumstances that don't fit in. But I'm saying the general idea of the exemption is based upon that. So if that's the basis... So that means that there's not, it's not that a woman wouldn't benefit from, from, from shaking a lulav. It's not that a woman wouldn't benefit from a sukkah. It's not that a woman wouldn't benefit from additional mitzvot to say. It's just that she wasn't required to do it. But if she has an opportunity to fulfill a mitzvah that, and it's going to bring her closer, it's going to help her further her connection to God, there's never any objection to that. See, I, wouldn't, I don't think that it's really true to without say... Why without a bracha? But that's, that's a different thing. I, I once had a... I once had a very modern Orthodox rabbi. He's pretty famous, so I'm not going to say his name, but a very modern Orthodox rabbi, let's say. Ashkenazi rabbi came to me and said, you know, Sephardic Jews are very good with... Actually, the Sephardic halacha is much more friendly to women than the Ashkenazi halacha in general. It's much more, it's much more uh, open-minded. It's much more flexible. It doesn't have as many restrictions that they're not allowed to do this or that. On the books, that's true, right? He said, but there's only one thing you don't let women say bachot when they shake the lulav. You don't let them say bachot when they do mitzvot, asesha, azman, graman, things like that. And I said, Rabbi, excuse me, it has nothing to do with letting or not letting. I say in the bacha, asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu. God commanded me to do this. If it's not a command, how can they say it? It has nothing to do with whether the, a woman, you know, it's, with women being less or more. Any person who's not obligated in the mitzvah, they can't say vitzivano because vitzivano means God commanded me to do it. Right? It has nothing to do with women more or less. If I'm sick, let's say, and I go to sit in the sukkah because I just, I, I feel like it. I'm exempt from the sukkah because I'm sick. I also can't say because I'm not obligated. So how can I say vitzivano? 
I'm deciding I want to sit out there because I want some fresh air, even though I'm exempt. Really? Right? You wouldn't say the bracha if you're sick? If you're sick, you can't say it's your patur, so you, 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 you wouldn't say the bracha. So, um, um, so it has nothing to do with the, with the, the point is that it has nothing to do with like more or less. It just has to do with the technicality. In what situation? Right. So sometimes if people, a lot of ladies they say, but the candles will say the kiddush, right? Everyone says it. It's better. I, I think it's it's recommended more to say it at the kiddush because with everyone together. People do, so it's okay. I think it's more. The only reason why I've heard that it's recommended to do it at the kiddush is because otherwise it's an interruption between the kiddush. And the uh, because you already fulfilled the saying the shecheyano, and then you're saying you're hearing the shecheyano saying amen again in between, and you don't really need the shecheyano. So people say, oh, it's better just to wait to say the shecheyano with the kiddush. But people who do say shecheyano in the, the candle lighting, it's okay, it's fine, not wrong. Yeah, people do it. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's anything wrong with it. Then you then you're not obligated during the kiddush, but you know that's that's what that's the only that's the only. Reservation, I've heard about it, but like I know that people do. People do both ways. Um, in any case, all mitzvot are good. So therefore, the more mitzvot you can do is always better. And if you're exempt from a mitzvah, the main point is to realize that doesn't this doesn't mean that there's anything bad about doing the mitzvah. <clears throat> it just means that you weren't required to do the mitzvah because you have other obligations and responsibilities, perhaps. But that doesn't. But if you have the opportunity to do the mitzvah, there's no reason not to. Um, and, uh, and especially if it's something that's going to enrich your connection to Toan, enrich your connection to God, you should do it. And, and in general, like I said, men and women both should try to do mitzvot with quality rather than quantity. You know, we're very rushed to say everything in the Sidur, but it would be better to say one of those paragraphs and actually know what you're saying. Slow down, say, do what you're saying. Know what you're saying. Like a lot of times, I, I almost, you know, when we do Sukkot de Zimra in the morning, I almost never say Az Yashir. Almost never. Because I'd rather go very slow with Ashrei and, the, you know, and, and those paragraphs. I go very slow reading the words and I let everyone else rush. And I go slow. It's, it's because then I actually gain something. It makes me think. It makes me reflect. I'm getting something out of it. You have to think this way. <coughs> I... I, I told the story a couple of times, but I'll t- uh, you might have heard it from me before, but I'll tell it again. That, you know, I, I, would, I found myself with a very bad habit that I was saying my morning brachot while I was making my coffee, you know? Like I was, I would be like, you know, putting the coffee, saying, Baruch Hashem, all these brachot as I'm putting the coffee. Because I, I get up very early, and like the first thing I do is I get my coffee, so I... I figured, okay, I'll, I'll hit two birds with one stone while I'm putting the coffee. I'll say, Elokai, Nishamash, and you know. So I'm, I'm doing this. And then like a while back, I said to myself, you know, this is not, what, what am I doing? Like I'm just saying words. I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying. I'm just saying it totally autopilot. There's no meaning of what the words are coming out of my mouth. Am I, do I think I'm sending God a gift because I'm saying because the, these words are mumbling out of my mouth? Like what is, and God is like, wow, thank you so much for saying those words. I really needed that, you know. I, it's not get, bringing me closer to, to, to anywhere. It's not moving me spiritually. I'm literally doing it with zero thought. 
So I started to get up and say, you know what? I'm going to take a sidur and I'm going to do b'chor shachar out of the sidur and then I'll get the coffee. So it takes me another, actually what I realized was how fast I was saying it because it takes me a lot longer when I actually say them out of the sidur. Slowly say each one and then it takes me, okay, two minutes of my time. But at least I actually thought about each one of the b'chor, okay? And, I, and, and then I went and, I, and, and did my coffee. So like, just that little change that a person implements in their daily life really can make a difference. Like much more than, you know what? I should say more mizmorim. I should say more tehillim. I should start adding vatit palil chana and do tefillat chana every morning because it's in the sidur. You know, there's so many things you could add, add, add. But imagine instead of adding, you said, I'm going to add kavana. You know? Like, it's actually changing me now. I'm actually thinking about those things that I'm grateful for when I wake up instead of just thinking about getting to my coffee and saying it as a habit, like a mechanical habit, like, uh, you know, with, with it has, that's empty of any meaning. Yes? I think a lot of us, or at least me, like, struggle with the kind of Kavana aspect because, like, there's so many different sources for, like, women's halakha. Like, I heard this in Sam, my mom does this, I learned mm-hmm. this in this book, so, like, can I say Shahiyam here or there, like, we were just saying, like, there's so what? much confusion that, like, instead of, like, having kavanah and focusing on what I'm saying, oh, am I doing this right? Am I saying this at the right time? Should I be saying five minutes of this tefillah? Is it better if I say the whole thing, if I have this amount of time? Like, just, right. women is there? Women just need halakha. I was going to ask, like, yeah. is there, like, a recommended, like, sefer for... Uh, like, not specifically our community, obviously, but like Sephardi <clears throat> women, like one book that like has women's halakha that you recommend women learning from, um, that like has the answers to these questions, so we know these things, so when, when we're like in the moment, right. we know what to do, and we could be more in it. What do you have? Which one? I don't remember. I once walked into one of the Yudikas, it wasn't here. It was no, it's like a Shulchan Aruch. It said Sephardi. I said I want a book for Shulchan Aruch. For women or or just general? Let's look and let's see. We have to look and find one. I mean, hopefully, I mean, we're not going to have that many weeks to do this class to be able to cover all of those kinds of questions. But uh, hopefully we'll get into some of those as we go ahead. As, well, like we'll try to do tefillah next time and maybe a lot of those questions we can clear up. And um, the thing is like, I would recommend to you there there is like there is a Vadia like Yalkut Yosef for women, but um, and right, it's in Hebrew. I don't know if they have it in English yet. Do they? Okay. Not yet. Yeah, but uh, well, we'll look. We'll we'll find. We'll see what we can find in terms of a good source. He has a question. He can just look it up. They can look at it. Yeah. 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 Be able to do it yourself. Maybe that's what we need to do. We need to write our own book. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> well, you know, the books that Rabbi Moshe wrote, like the book for Tarat it's very good. I mean, yeah. the books he wrote are excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And we also need to, like I would also say that um, I used, when I taught at Harova, I was using the... Uh, Halacha for women, the Yalkut Yosef for women for the, uh, from Rauvadia. But a lot of things in there are not necessarily what our community holds. 
like, or Rabbi Ben Chaim holds, or what, what our minhagim are. So I was always kind of like filling it out with other details of different opinions and different viewpoints so that they would see the total picture. Kind of tweak it or, yeah. Well, so hopefully we'll be able to cover at least some of the topics, at least filah and some of the other related topics over this over the course of this uh, series. And then maybe at the end we can like even summarize and put something in writing that would help everyone to, uh, you know, to have it for the future and then maybe even build on it. Like we could make like a Google Doc version of a women's halakha that we could, we could develop. From the recording. Do you want a real book? Yeah. Right. The only, the, the only reason why I like Google Doc is because I, one of the reasons why I'm very opposed to writing anything and why it's so hard for me to write is I hate putting things in stone because then you're like, oh, I forgot to mention this and I forgot to mention that and now it's already printed and I forgot to mention 17. Yeah. 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 Eventually we could, we could, we could print for, for sure. It's a good idea. It's a, it's a great, you know, it's definitely a need. So maybe we can make that one of our projects of our, uh, okay. Sounds good. Thank you everyone.